to the Veridical Podcast. I am Jack Cesare. All right, episode two. This is uh, going to be our first presentation of an actual book on the podcast. And as I said last episode, I want to start with a theological read, one that's pretty simple to understand, yet interesting and also new. Before we get started, some minor housekeeping here. As I foretold, I heard the audio grievances on the last episode, and I'm getting much better readings this time around. So, if the audio is not easy on the ear, please continue to inform me. When we discuss these topics, they can get pretty technical, and they can get pretty intricate, and it's good that it can at least sound easy to your ears. If it's not easy on the ears, it's not worth listening to. So, that said, let's begin. The book we're discussing today is Heaven by Randy Alcorn. Heaven is a very dense book, it's very thick, and it's Randy Alcorn's attempt to make heaven understandable and tangible within our imaginations. Randy challenges the notion that we cannot imagine heaven, and he uses a lot of scripture and an inductive reasoning platform to really scape your horizon on what heaven can look like. So, for the first chunk of this podcast, we will be taking an objective overview of the book. I, for the most part, agree with what a lot of stuff Randy has going on here. So, it'll be hard for me to separate my opinion with the objective overview, because there is a lot here that deserves praise. However, in the end, as you will come to know, uh, there's also a lot here that can be criticized. Randy is not perfect, and the book itself is also not perfect, and there are some parts that make you scratch your head. However, we will get to those eventually. So, that's enough introduction. Let's begin. Randy begins the book in a way that I really appreciate, right here in the introduction. He starts by discussing how every culture, whether Christian or not, has an innate sense of the ephemeral world, meaning they all have this sense of something beyond the materialistic world we inhabit. I'm going to go ahead and read this opening paragraph. The sense that we will live forever somewhere has shaped every civilization in human history. Australian Aborigines pictured heaven as a distant island beyond the western horizon. The early Finns thought it was an island in the faraway east. Mexicans, Peruvians, and Polynesians believed that they went to the sun or the moon after death. Native Americans believed that in the afterlife, their spirits would hunt the spirits of buffalo. The Gilgamesh epic, an ancient Babylonian legend, refers to a resting place of heroes and hints at a tree of life. In the pyramids of Egypt, the embalmed bodies had maps placed beside them, as guides to the future world. The Romans believed that the righteous would picnic in the Elysian fields while their horses grazed nearby. Seneca, the Roman philosopher, said, The day thou fearest as the last is the birthday of eternity. Although these depictions of the afterlife differ, the unifying testimony of the human heart throughout history is belief in life after death. Anthropological evidence suggests that every culture has a God-given, innate sense of the eternal, that this world is not all there is. 
I want to note that Randy doesn't really model this book in an apologetic sense, as in, he's not really making an argument. Rather, he's presenting ideas and discouraging other ideas. And I really appreciate this style of writing. You will notice this throughout the book that this is really a presentation of possibilities. So after this introduction, he then moves on to discuss the terminal disease, the inherited sin that all humans have. And Randy just wants to outline the importance of contemplating heaven, that you simply cannot continue to live your life in relative ease without having an existential thought of where you will go. Randy wants all of us to think of a time when we thought heaven would be boring, when someone said, so heaven is just you worshiping for eternity. Well, that sounds like hell. He describes our idea of heaven as impoverished. How can we be hopeful for something we have an impoverished theology on? I want to read this paragraph here. Satan need not convince us that heaven does not exist. He need only convince us that heaven is a place of boring, unearthly existence. If we believe that lie, we'll be robbed of our joy and anticipation. We'll set our minds on this life and not the next, and we won't be motivated to share our faith. Why should we share the good news that people can spend eternity in a boring, ghostly place that even we are not looking forward to? And if Randy is correct here, that this is how Satan is operating, then it is clear that he's operating well, especially in our modern society. After discussing the terminal disease, Randy does mention hell, and he doesn't really say a whole lot other than things y'all have already heard before. So, I have a lot to say on hell, and we will get to that later. So, after addressing our askewed view on heaven, he begins to talk about imagining heaven. He brings up the fact that scripture often paints heaven in tangible earthly terms, such as gardens, cities, feasts, banquet, roads, right? All of these things are well within our imagination. And so we begin to see heaven is imaginable. And many are quick to say that the Bible doesn't talk a lot about heaven. Well, Randy is quick to point out that it does. The, the scriptures are littered with discussions of heaven. Randy has a beautiful sentence here under the topic of picturing heaven. He says, You don't need to look up at the clouds. You simply need to look around you and imagine what all this would be like without sin and death and suffering and corruption. For many who don't spend a lot of time in theological circles, they may lose the understanding that heaven is not a place outside of earth. In fact, systematic theology clearly places heaven here on earth. Earth will be redeemed. And Randy is trying to establish this because many people overlook it, and they even get into heretical theology, such as heaven being a purely spiritual place, an immaterial place, somewhere that's not physical. Randy's main thesis is that heaven's imaginable, and it's clearly physical. That is something he is pretty militant about throughout the whole book. He even coins his own term called Christoplatonism, which is a mixture of Christianity 
with Plato's philosophy. Plato was a Gnostic, and the Gnostics were very anti-materialist. They believed anything that had to do with the flesh was purely evil. So they would also even deny that Jesus was fully human, as that would incorporate corruption into the nature of Christ. Randy wants us to know that in heaven, all five senses, and maybe more, will be fully active and engaged. Now, Randy covers, honestly, hundreds of different topics throughout this book, and I had to perform sort of a triage on prioritizing which ones are worth talking about. Um, I will mention the eschatology of heaven, but I'm not going to break it down. This can be pretty boring, especially for those not super invested in the topic. Eschatology is basically the study of the end of the world. And there is much debate on how exactly the sequence of events unfolds at the rapture, but there is a common agreed uh, method that this will unfold, and I'll kind of explain it here. So, if you were to pass away right now, you would not enter the final heaven. You would go into what's known as current heaven, or present heaven. Present heaven is the land described in the Old Testament, right? Paradise, Abraham's bosom, the abode of the dead. It is also referred to as Hades, although Hades can also be used as a synonym for hell. However, there are many times where Hades is used in the Old Testament as just a statement of the land of the dead. So, returning back to the topic, so that's where you would go if you were to pass away now, and you would sit in current heaven, and I must mention it's probably really great there, it's not a bad place to be, um, but it's not the final project, right? God still intends to dwell with us here on earth. And upon Christ's return, that will be the moment where earth is made dwellable for God again. It will be purified. And the current heaven, whether in another realm or in the physical realm, whatever, will manifest itself to our current earth. And from there, the judgment ensues, right? So this will be the final declaration of where people go. The main point to get across here is, if you die now, you're not going to the final heaven. And this makes it rather awkward because we think there's so many people in heaven right now. And it's not that we should correct our speech to say, oh, no, no, no they're not in heaven. They're in the present heaven. They're in the compartment waiting for the second coming. No, we're fine saying they're in heaven, but as far as our eschatological intelligence goes, we should acknowledge that there are in fact two phases, one prior to Christ's return and one after, and the one after Christ's return will be the reshaping of earth, essentially. So, moving on. Maintaining consciousness. This is surprisingly in big debate, this idea of if we will maintain consciousness until the final heaven. Some neglect the idea of the present heaven and say that we'll just lie dormant in a dreamless slumber until the return of Christ. But we have many accounts in scripture of individuals in heaven before Christ's return, so you have to wonder where they're at and how they're conscious. One heretical view of eschatology is 
for those that are not granted access to heaven. They will face what is called annihilation. And annihilation is returning to the state that you were before you were conceived. Non-existent. And if you think about it, if you're not destined for heaven, well, non-existence is the next closest thing. Annihilationism is basically a band-aid for the wound of addressing hell. Needless to say, all Randy is trying to do is establish that consciousness is maintained throughout the entire process and will be maintained for eternity. Next, Randy moves to discuss the physical heaven, right? It's important to establish heaven will be physical. And like I said earlier, many regard it as ephemeral and just the spiritual realm. Well, Randy says, though God chooses to dwell in heaven, he does not need a dwelling place. However, as finite humans, we do. It's not a problem for the all-powerful God, a spirit, to dwell in a spiritual realm or a physical realm or a realm that includes both. The real question is whether people, being by nature both spiritual and physical, can dwell in a realm without physical properties. Randy does concede a little bit that many of his ideas in this book are postulated on uncertainty, meaning we'll never quite know for sure until that moment the true nature. And so he says here, can finite humans exist outside of space and time like God does? Well, he's not certain, but he is certain that if we can, it is only as a temporary aberration that'll be permanently corrected by our bodily resurrection in preparation for life on the new earth. But you can see, even through his speculation, he is still pretty devoted and dogmatic on the idea of a physical heaven. Many times later throughout the book, there will be massive amounts of scripture that are dug into to help establish the idea of a physical heaven. The first one is Luke chapter 16, which for those of y'all that know, this is the story of Lazarus and the rich man. And I'm not going to read out the whole thing, but here are the main components. Lazarus is the servant of a rich man. And when Lazarus dies, angels carry him to paradise, and the rich man eventually dies and goes to a place of torment. And Lazarus is with Abraham, uh, the rich man is by himself, and the intermediate heaven and hell are separated by a chasm. But in this case, people on both sides can see and communicate with each other, at least to a limited basis. It's possible that this was granted uh, to Abraham and the rich man as an exception, but it's not the norm, and we shouldn't build a doctrine on it because it's not supported by other references. These are all Randy's outlines. Both the rich man and Abraham reasoned and communicated, and they maintained their distinct identities from earth, as did Lazarus, indicating direct continuity from the earthly lives to their afterlives. The rich man and Lazarus are depicted as having physical forms. The rich man has a tongue and a thirst that he wished to satisfy with water. Lazarus has a finger, and there is water available to him in paradise, into which he might dip his finger. 
and of course these references may be entirely figurative, but they might also suggest the possession of transitional physical forms existing in a physical paradise to sustain and manifest human identity between death and resurrection. The rich man certainly remembers, and even possibly sees, his lost brothers. He expresses concern for their welfare, and asks that Lazarus be sent to warn them. I'm going to interject here for those that don't understand this part of the story. The rich man is concerned about his brothers, who seemingly don't have faith in God, and is telling Lazarus to go and warn them, because he doesn't want them to be in hell like he is. So, continuing on, uh, this idea indicates that consciousness after death and clear memory of earth and people on earth is maintained. And Abraham says that no one can cross the gap between heaven and hell. So these are all the inferences we can make from the story. And whether it's figurative or not, there are some things that can kind of transcend whether it's just merely figurative or not. So the idea of consciousness and the idea of agony and the idea of paradise, at least survive it being a figurative speech. I do think it is valuable to point out that Randy is not saying this is a literal interpretation. In fact, he does outline that there is a problem with it being a literal interpretation, and that it is it presses too far, suggesting things that are not likely and not really taught anywhere else, such that people in heaven and hell can talk to each other. And so, he steers us away from taking a literal interpretation, yet wants us to still absorb the emotions involved in the story. There is another passage that Randy outlines here to make inductions on heaven, and he does a really good job at dissecting it. Here on page 65, he brings up Revelations chapter 6, and there's basically martyrs in heaven who have died for the faith, and they're basically kind of growing impatient, to a degree, on justice not being served on their killers. So, Randy offers 21 observations from the passage, and I want to outline each one, because they're all pretty important. So, number one, when these people died on earth, they relocated to heaven. Number two, these people in heaven were the same ones killed for Christ while on earth. Number three, people in heaven will be remembered for their lives on earth. Number four, they called out in verse 10, means that they're able to express themselves audibly. Number five, people in the present heaven can raise their voices. Number six, as the verses point out, they called out in a loud voice, not loud voices, meaning individuals speaking with one voice indicate that heaven is a place of unity and shared perspective. Number seven, the martyrs are fully conscious. Number eight, they ask God to intervene on earth and to act on their behalf. Uh, in quotes, how long until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Number nine, those in heaven are free to ask God questions, which means that they have an audience. It also means that they don't have perfect knowledge. Number 10, people in the present heaven know what's happening on earth. Number 11, heaven dwellers have deep concern for justice and retribution. Number 12, the martyrs clearly remember their lives on earth. Number 13, the martyrs in heaven pray for judgment on their persecutors, who are still at work hurting others. Number 14, those in heaven see God's attributes. Number 15, those in heaven are distinct individuals. 
Number 16. The martyrs are wearing white robes, suggesting the possibility of actual clothes. Number 17. God answers their questions, which means there will be interaction with God. Number 18. God promises to fulfill the martyr's request, but says that they'll have to wait a little longer in verse 11. Number 19. There is time in the present heaven, and they are aware of the passing of time. Number 20. The people of God in heaven have a strong familial connection with those on earth who are called their fellow servants and brothers. And number 21. Our sovereign God knows down to the last detail all that is happening and will happen on earth. So, Randy will continue to use deductive reasoning from scripture. And after this, he moves on to the idea of redemptive continuity which is that those things that are righteous will be fully redeemed, noting that you don't have to be redeemed to be righteous, or at least be in the vital state of redemption to be righteous. And all things from buildings to music to culture uh, that are righteous will have a state of continuation under redemption. So music will be redeemed, and buildings and cities and cultures will continue in a state of redemption. Now, there are some exceptions. So, things that are outright apart from God, where God is essentially closest to non-existent in, will probably not continue. So, strip clubs, well, it's just a safe bet that they're not going to be on the final heaven. The Aztecs who had a fondness of cutting kids' heads off and rolling them down pyramids. Well, it's just safe to assume that also probably won't be there. You can summarize it by saying redemptive continuity applies to those that seek it, including things that are not conscious, like culture and music. And in the grand scheme, Earth has redemptive continuity and Randy does an excellent job at pointing out why this is important. So if Earth was abandoned, and Heaven really was, even maybe a physical location, just outside of Earth, you could basically then say that Satan, in one way or another, won. He made Earth so corrupted, it wasn't worth God's time to save it you would essentially see God renouncing his claim on the earth and surrendering it to Satan, saying, look, you broke it, you can have it, I don't want it anymore. And he doesn't do that with us, and earth was here before us, so God clearly has an affinity to earth. And as is the normal nature of God, he has a knack for making things good again. And that will extend to earth. This brings us to the idea of thinking heavenly, and a term I like to use often of investing in where you will be the longest. Randy quotes Bruce Milne in what can either be assuring or tormenting. He says, every kingdom work, whether publicly performed or privately endeavored, partakes in the kingdom's imperishable character. Every honest intention Every stumbling word of witness, every resistance of temptation, every motion of repentance, every gesture of concern, every routine, engagement, every motion of worship, 
every struggle towards obedience, every mumbled prayer, everything, literally everything, which flows out of our faith relationship with the ever-living one, will find its place in the ever-living heavenly order, which all dawn at his coming. Meaning, this is all we have. This time here, these 80 years. And when you compare these 80 years to eternity, well, they look like nothing. They are nothing. How you utilize your time today determines how you will be utilizing your time in eternity. And Randy really wants us to call attention to vanity and the form of vapor that this life truly vehicles. Your life really will change, as Randy points out, when you begin to think heavenly. When you begin to think of your actions determining your state in heaven, you become more inclined to do greater works of service, and you gain a new affection for the little things. Now, with this new understanding of thinking heavenly, Randy turns us to the idea of worship and the misconceptions about worship. You have heard it described as heaven being a place of infinite worship, and that is a turnoff to be singing for eternity. However, this is gestated out of a misconception, and Randy wants us to understand that worship takes the form of many things, whether it be work, conversations, how we are using our time. Worship is merely paying homage to God and recognizing him as the creator of all things we can even conceive as good. Randy wants us to notice that we will have roles in heaven, we'll have jobs, and we'll have friends and relationships, and even free time. And all of these things can be done in an act of worship. So in a sense, yeah, heaven is infinite worship, but that doesn't mean you won't have an individual life. So Randy wants us to expel all of those just ridiculous ideas of sitting on a cloud and playing a harp for all of time. After this, Randy moves to another pretty important topic, and that's the idea of ruling and hierarchy. Now, a lot of us are disposed to the idea of hierarchy, and it makes sense. We've seen it abused time and time again, whether it be in the patriarchal structures of sexism or the racist structures where there's a hierarchy of valuable citizens and even the allocating of some to the idea of subspecies. So our dispositions are kind of understandable and even justified. However, hierarchy has been hijacked by sin, and God was ruling the earth even before humans were on the scene. So ruling and governance is not the product of our sinful nature. We've only seen the corrupted aspect of it, and we have yet to see what hierarchy under the principle of redemptive continuity looks like. But ruling is an important concept, and scripture clearly says that we will rule in the new earth. Now, who will we rule? 
or what will we rule? There is a distinct outline that Randy makes to land ownership. And if you think about it, in the modern day, less and less people truly own stuff, right? Most cars are not fully paid off. Most houses are not fully paid off. In fact, most people are renting more now than ever before, right? Ownership of property is at its least. Now, don't get me misconstrued here. If you live in America, you are in one of the wealthiest nations in the world. This is not to turn away from the complete lack of ownership in the more unfortunate countries, but this applies to all of them. Obviously, heaven is not an Americentric idea. So when you look on the global scale, there's even less ownership now than probably ever in human history. One need only glance at the wealth disparity in America to understand the point being made here. So back on the topic of heaven, we will finally truly grasp the idea of ownership and the idea of land. Now, you can see in this part where Randy begins to show his more speculative nature, saying, well, we'll probably rule each other, but what if God created other beings for us to rule? Now, if you are disposed to the idea of being ruled by someone else, well, step back and acknowledge that your disposition is purely birthed out of the idea of watching others sin, right? So imagine you're being ruled, but by a ruler who truly has your best intentions in mind, one who's not greedy, one who's not power hungry, one who's not in it for their own gain. Well, now ruling and being ruled by someone isn't so bad of an idea. And I encourage all of y'all to think back in a time where you worked a job and had a really delightful boss. And if you have yet to have that experience, I, I'm sorry for you, but for those of us who have at least one good memory of an excellent manager, just imagine that times infinity. And of course not dictating your life, right? But more as a guide. And then you will be a guide for someone else. Now, this is hierarchy, but we need not see it as vertical hierarchy, meaning people above us. So, Randy points out, we'll all be equal, right? We'll be equal with the Apostle Paul. But Paul will probably have more significant rulings than us. But that doesn't make his value surpass ours. Now, this may be hard to grasp, and it's not bad to say that Randy has a hard time articulating this idea. So, here's an easy band-aid for the whole discussion. No matter what the situation is of hierarchy in heaven, we need not worry about it. And this isn't even a cop-out. When you describe heaven to an unbeliever, they may often reply with something like, oh, that's awfully convenient. And you can respond by saying, well, of course, it's heaven. Convenience is in the nature of it. So, no matter what the hierarchical structure is in heaven, we can look forward to owning land and owning property for once. God will trust us with it, and we will steward it well to his glory in heaven.
At least that is what Randy is stating here. Further down the line, Randy brings up a new topic. The idea of being infinite. So, oftentimes people believe in heaven will be made perfect, which we will, but they think that that entails being infinite, whether it be infinite knowledge, infinite strength. I mean, well, that is not a nature of being perfect. And this begins to shine when you ask a lot of the questions about heaven, like, will we know everything? Will we be able to do everything? The answer is no. And restrictions to our abilities does not defeat the value of perfection. And this is purely good news. Think about it. If you were training for a marathon and you had to wake up and try week after week after week to get faster mile times and go further, and let's say you even failed a couple times along the road, you tripped or you hurt yourself. Well, when it came time for the marathon and you place well in it, that feeling is amplified because of the trials you endured to get there. The same can be seen in the metaphor of studying for a test. Those sleepless nights, those canceling plans, that good test grade is made more rewarding in pale of the sacrifices you made. This isn't going to mean in heaven we're going to hurt ourselves or have sleepless nights, but it does mean we may have to put more effort into some things than others. And we may even request help from others. You will have your certain designations of things you are good at, and your designation of things you're not so good at. And this all falls back into the idea of redemptive continuity. Whatever you're passionate about, whatever you love, right? Well, that is probably going to be similar in nature in heaven. And so for those that are hyper-athletic here on earth now, we can assume that this will continue in a redemptive nature. For those that love to study and read, they may be the intellectuals of the heavenly realm. Same goes for builders, programmers, repairmen. All of these things that people take pride in and truly enjoy, this will be falling under redemptive continuity in the new earth. And as far as us requesting help from others, think of how good it will feel to be able to utilize your skills to help others in heaven. This is an excellent design choice. Next, we move to a common contention to heaven, and one that skeptics and unbelievers love to test heaven on, and that is how the presence of free will will not corrupt us again. As we all know, the fall, whether figurative or literal, was caused by Adam and Eve's free will to choose to eat from the forbidden tree. Well, if it was the giving of free will in a heaven-like state like Eden, how will free will not corrupt us again? And Randy's response to this is very useful. He begins to discuss nature, and Adam and Eve weren't redeemed. And that's important to note. Redemption can only be given to a fallen creature. Now, 
this can become rather paradoxical, as, are we in a better state now, after sin, than we were if we never sinned in the first place? Now, that is a tough one, and it can lead you to a strange rabbit hole. So we will diverge from that. When you look at the nature of a redeemed being, the ability to sin is not there because the desire is not there. And this is not an infringement on their will. A good example is, think of a leopard. If a leopard truly does have free will, it can choose where to run, how to eat its food, and what tree to climb. Yet it cannot choose to be a vegetarian. That's just out of its nature, right? My inability to fly is not an infringement on my free will. Flying is simply just out of my nature. Translating this to the experience in heaven, after the beatific vision, when one truly lays their eyes on the physical Lord, it is clear to say that that intention or that desire to sin, well, that would already have been evaporated by then. It simply won't exist. And this is not infringing on your free will. This is a good time to wrap up on the objective overview of the book. Um, I want to mention a couple other topics to stimulate you guys into wanting to read the book. Randy seeks to answer a lot of the common questions about heaven. So let me read a couple of them out to you. And think of all the questions you've ever had about heaven. Well, this is a 500-page book, right? There's a chance, and a high one at that, that the answer is in here, at least a speculative answer. So Randy covers topics like, will our pets be in heaven? What will our daily life be? What kind of food will we eat? Will there be seasons, right? Will there be fall, the season fall? Doesn't that involve death of trees? Will there be decomposition? Will we eat meat? Will we be able to travel? What kind of technology will there be? Will we be able to travel to other planets and even live on them? Will we rule those planets? What about aliens? Right? All of these questions and plenty more are all in the book. And I'm seeing one more topic I want to nail on. Just because, I mean, this is just so beautiful. So, on the topic of babies that have died, and this is not me getting into the discussion on abortion, so let's just leave it at miscarriages, right? Babies that died before birth. Well, Randy talks about how parenting is a gift from God, and of course, The book also covers what age will be in heaven. Translating that to the topic of the babies, Randy says maybe it's possible, and this is just speculative, maybe it's possible that parents who never got to be parents will get a chance at raising that kid. Under the redemptive continuity of being a parent, It doesn't mean that that kid is idly sitting at his age, 
waiting for his parents to go, and then he'll start to grow under their supervision. Right? Maybe not. But just this idea that all things will be restored. And Randy wants us to know, and he says this explicitly, we will have the opportunity to avenge our missed opportunities here on earth. Every great thing you wanted to do, but couldn't due to money or time or availability, these opportunities will present themselves again. And why not the opportunity to be a parent? I just find this beautiful, and it gets me excited for heaven. So, that will do it for the objective overview. I, again, I I can't stress this enough, that I probably covered maybe 25% of the content in the book. There is a lot here. So, don't let my monologue explain away the book for you. you. You will have to read it to get the full experience. But moving on to my personal opinion, I do have some criticisms here. The first thing I want to challenge goes back to Luke chapter 16 and the idea of the rich man and Lazarus as a true story. Now, I would categorize this as a parable of some sort. And the refuting to my position is done by saying, Well, they use names in this parable. No other parables use a name. But I want to draw attention to the name Lazarus. Lazarus is translated from the Hebrew name Eliezer, which means God has helped. And we don't need to ignore the past tense of that. This shows the name Lazarus at least in the context of Luke 16, the name was given probably after the story, or to describe the person. The only other name we get is Abraham, who is extended outside of the story and exists for all of us. The rich man doesn't have a name. Is it because he didn't deserve one? Well, we see other evil men are named ad nauseum throughout scripture, so that can't be the case. I think taking Luke 16 to be very descriptive of the nature of heaven is a stretch. And Randy did say it's kind of a stretch, but he still derives more from it than I believe we should. And I think it's a bad example to help model heaven. Right? We Sure, we can get that there's emotions. We can see that hell is agony. No surprise there. And we can see that... Heaven is rather peaceful, but there's infinitely more scripture that we can use to build this case. And Randy devotes many pages to the Luke 16 story. So for all of y'all that were very militant about it not being a parable, I want to point out again, the name is given after the fact. So this is not a harsh criticism, which is merely pointing it out. Again, I really loved this book. This book did a lot for me, and I found it in a time when I needed to begin thinking heavenly. Now, of course, every time is a time to begin thinking heavenly, but never once did I begin to ponder the intricacies of heaven, and 
I found myself getting really wrapped up in the vanity of this earth. And I still see it across the board with our species, and still with myself. But this book has equipped me to a degree, maybe not with knowledge of, because it is all speculative, but with the ability to be speculative myself. This book got me excited for the afterlife. Randy Alcorn did a great job. And if you're not excited for heaven, then how is heaven heaven to you? Another criticism I have here is Randy's writing style. This is a 500-page book that could have been done very well in 300 pages. There is about 200 pages of repetition here. So, the idea that Earth, being the location of the final heaven, that is very important. And I can understand Randy's incentive to outline that consistently. However, there is a lot of repeating that idea in standalone sentences, where it should just be incorporated throughout the book and other ideas. It is not. Oftentimes, I found myself reading sections and asking myself, wait, didn't I read this before? So there will be one section labeled something as, is Earth really the location for the final heaven? And then there will be another section called, is Earth really the location for the final judgment? And another section of, can heaven really be a physical place? And is Earth going to be that physical place? Okay, well, those are all the same thing. And there's a lot of that. And you kind of have to push through it. However, it is worth it. Because when you get into the more philosophical endeavors of the book, it is a wellspring of ideas. And good ones at that. Moving on, I want to get to a topic that is typically frowned upon. And that is the idea of hell. And more specifically, how to speak about it. It's becoming to my attention that more and more people are losing their belief in hell. And it makes sense when you ask yourself, well, how could a loving God send someone to hell? And this sent me on a journey. Because I myself, and as I stated before on the podcast, were devoted to reason and truth here. And if reason and truth surpasses a preconceived notion about a religion, well, the truth will survive it. And I was very open to losing my idea of hell. If hell couldn't be justified, then I was very comfortable dropping it. Right? The idea that, well, it's true because the Bible says so. Well, I can't use the Bible to justify the Bible. That is masochism there. That is intellectual suicide. And I avoid that at all costs. So, before I diverged there, on the topic of hell, I had many questions, right? What is it? Where is it? Is it physical? And if so, does God have dominion there? Is God absent? Or is it his wrath being poured out? Right? What is the fire like? Is it really fire? And I want to say... I have a writing on hell. It's called The Anatomy of Hell. And I'm happy to send that out to anyone who wants to read. 
It is in academic language, so prepare to bear with that. And I kind of seek to discuss the nature of hell. And I'm not going to get into it here, but I do want to say one of my points. And that is hell is vastly misadvertised. So is heaven. And what I mean by that is hell is often described as an eternal torture chamber where you, and I'm not trying to be funny here, but just go and get raped and burned for the rest of eternity. Well, that just sounds like you're weaponizing hell against people you don't like. And it also sounds like we have a very elementary idea of it. All scripture says is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I'm pretty convinced, based on my research of the topic, that hell is put in terms to merely sound undesirable for good reason. The number one thing that people think of when they think of hell is flames. And if you can picture living in that ancient civilization and you have God or Christ trying to relay information to you, he's going to do it in the most easily palatable and understandable way possible. And just disclosing this here, that's what I believe the Genesis narrative is. It is God relaying the information of the creation of heaven and earth to individuals who don't have the ability to understand evolution at the time and germ theory and seasons, right? So maybe that is translated to the idea of hell, where the worst pain a human can probably imagine is being burnt alive. Every other form of death you can probably lose control of your senses at one point or another. If you're freezing to death, you can become numb in certain areas. If you're drowning, you can begin to pass out. If you're dying from hunger or sleep deprivation, you'll begin to hallucinate. You'll go a little crazy. But these don't involve explicit pain. Not to say freezing and drowning aren't painful. They, they certainly are. But not to the extent that burning is. Burning is an instant sense of pain. And in the case of third degree burns, it's permanent pain. So translating hell to an ancient Hebrew or an Israelite, it makes sense to put it in these terms. We act as if we need hell to be just pure physical agony 24-7 for it to be righteous and justice for the non-believers. Meanwhile, I'm led to believe hell is far worse than that, in that hell is the mere absence of a relationship with God, and not just an emotional relationship, but notice how God is the binder of all the forces of nature. He is the one that helps orchestrate atoms in a way to keep everything stable to a degree. Now, this also works in the spiritual realm, right? He is holding our consciousness together. So what happens when he stops? What happens in our mind when God is not holding it together? I imagine that as hell. And no doubt it'll be painful 
But I'm going to end the topic by saying this. I can recall, in the past two years, at least four or five times, when I would rather be in an eternal pit of fire than get a notification that my God has abandoned me. Think about it. So, um, all I have to say is, when we speak of hell, we don't need to say it's a torture chamber, even if it does involve a wrathful God, right? But we do need to outline that it is the complete loss of everything we can even conceive as good, okay? And heaven, on the contrary, is also misadvertised. No doubt heaven will have great amenities, such as amazing food, a lot of free time, and no more exhaustion from doing your work, right? But if that is what you mainly look forward to in heaven, you will miss the bigger picture. You will miss the only picture. You'll miss the true fact that heaven can be described as anywhere where God is, meaning God is the outliner of heaven's identity, and hell is anywhere where God is not. So if you're advertising heaven as just blissful paradise, but leaving out the fact that you are going to be in the eternal presence of the infinite God, you are misadvertising it. And this brought me to the knowledge that sending people to hell is not really what God does. He merely hands us over to our desires. Now, many may counter my argument by saying, well, if everyone knew what heaven was, they would desire it. Well, I say no. If everyone knew heaven to be great amenities and great food, of course they would want to go. But when you bring in the eternal God, who judges our actions, who holds us to a standard, for many people, being in an infinite presence of that being, that would paradoxically be hell for them. And to many, heaven sounds like a place where God is absent. So, when you think about it, God will not send you somewhere you don't want to be. So, in response to the question, how could a loving God, an all-perfect God, send anyone to hell? I am left wondering how a God, an all-perfect God, can send any of us to heaven when we are in the state we are in. It truly is a paradox, and we will know its full nature eventually. Another thing this book got me completely riveted about is exploring. Interstellar has to be probably the greatest movie ever made in the world. And it is an inspiring movie, and it inspires me. That movie is an emotional roller coaster for me. I've seen it over 20 times, meaning at least 60 hours of my life has been spent watching Interstellar. And I'll gladly spend 60 more hours watching it. And when you adopt the idea of thinking heavenly, and how God wants us to explore and discover the wonders he has made, it really gets me thinking about space. It is very safe to assume 
that Christ will return before we have mapped all of space. That is almost obvious, just because space is nearly infinite. So, why would God create such a magical universe that we'll never fully discover? And I am excited for the idea of exploring space and all the wonders that God has made in the afterlife. Right? We won't be restricted by price and breathable atmospheres and noxious gases. We will just have all the wonders and splendors of his creation. And on top of it, discovering them and magnifying God's glory will constitute as the worship we'll be doing. It is just for my explorer's heart. I mean, I'm speechless on the topic. And bringing this podcast to a close, I want to emphasize something I mentioned earlier, and that is thinking heavenly and investing where you'll be the longest. Truly, right? you begin to measure your money differently. You begin to spend it differently. You begin to think of allocating your time, effort, words, and money in a way that will survive the cleansing fires of making the new earth. When Christ returns, this world will be cleansed of all the things that will not continue in the new earth. Right? What we build here and what we do with our time will determine if it is surviving of those fires. Any idea, any company, any major move we do here will continue only if it glorifies God. This should change our actions radically, and it should change us to be standout individuals where we are not constrained by our 80 years here. Death is almost poetically beautiful in a sense. Nothing grows until it finally dies. And we all have to face our mortality. It is around us. Many will run from this reality. And I have a lot more to say on mortality and the wonders that death can bring someone to. But I'll save that for a later episode when I'm not trying to get this podcast off the ground. But until then, think heavenly and look at how your time here on Earth will translate to the afterlife. Alright, that will do it for episode 2. Again, I would appreciate all the feedback. Right, I'm open to criticisms. And I want to know if this format is entertaining or not. If the objective overview followed by my opinion, is worth it. Another thing I want to talk about is, this book was a theological read, but this will certainly not be the common trope and easy read for this podcast. I want to talk about content that is not usually dug into. I felt this book, Heaven, was a good introduction, and it does present some new ideas especially for those who don't usually ponder the afterlife. However, I want this to be stimulating 
but at the same time not forced. I don't want us to feel like we're forced to think outside the box, when oftentimes the answer is inside the box and easy for us to to reach. No doubt I did not share my full theological views in this episode. Those will secrete out throughout the podcast. I don't choose to be standout in my views, but my devotion to reality and my devotion to what I deem objective truth has led me to diverge in one way or another. And again, no doubt those will bleed through the following episodes. So I will now begin looking into the next book for us to discover here. I do encourage y'all to read Heaven by Randy Alcorn. It will hopefully change your life. It really did change mine. I hold a new perspective almost every day in one way or another. Whether it be looking at nature, looking at people, and also thinking of opportunities that I miss. This idea that everything will be made right. That is a form of compensation for the troubles and the things we miss out here on earth. So, to all of y'all, I look forward to seeing y'all in heaven. And with that, I bid you farewell. Until next time, goodbye.